chapter 5, verses 18 through 27. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream." Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sicketh, your king, and Cayun, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. The word of the Lord. Part of me longs to know God, to draw near to Him, to kneel before a benevolent and good and loving Creator, to know the intimacy of His love that is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. But part of me desires that God wouldn't really speak into my life, that I could keep Him at arm's length, and that He would only show up really when I wanted Him to. Walking with Jesus is living in this tension. Being called by God, but living in a place where we're often frustrated or disappointed by what He has chosen to do or what He has allowed to permit or permitted. And so we feel alienated from Him. Now, the danger in that is how unreliable, even how precarious our minds are as we process that reality and live in that tension. There's been great advances in brain science in the last few decades, and one of the observations that brain science has made is that our memories are highly unreliable. If you've ever worked on Microsoft Word, it's uh, one of the best word processing programs for this particular feature. It's the Save As feature. You can go into a document, and you can work on it and make changes, Right? And then you can save it as something else. You alter it and change it and produce something new. Well, brain scientists would say, anytime we visit a memory, we do the same thing. Right? We go into that memory, and whether we know it or not, we often actually doctor it. And so as years go by, a memory changes. And that memory is really not entirely reliable for anyone on any particular subject. One of the journalists investigating this uh, was kind of laughing at himself and exploring this notion in that he had a wonderful memory from high school. It's a memory of sitting outside on the bleachers and watching a football game, sitting with his friends, joking, laughing, and they were all drinking Coke together. You know, a quintessential high school memory. But as he was evaluating his own memories, as he was considering this, he began to think about this particular memory, and it struck him as odd because... He could not remember ever really going to a football game. He was a nerd. His friends didn't go to football games. They certainly didn't hang out at football games. And 
the notion of the coke was odd because uh, he actually called the school and said, hey, listen, you know, do you serve cokes at games and do you serve them in glass bottles because that's his memory? They said, no, we haven't allowed glass in the stadium since you know, a decade before he showed up to high school. What he realized was running a little bit before the time that he was exploring this idea was a Coke commercial of friends sitting in a stadium, drinking Coke together and laughing. And subconsciously, unbeknownst to him, he had conflated those two notions and created a memory. Right? We have a tendency to do things of this nature. The question that raises is how reliable are we at processing really our condition or our place and our relationship with God? What Amos uh, points up to Israel today is that really you've created some bad theology. You've come to some very bad conclusions as a result of just not thinking things through clearly and relying on memories and misappropriating them in the wrong way. Right? It's resulted in a number of errors on Israel's part. Bad theology, which has resulted in bad worship, which has resulted in bad ethics. All of these things are intimately related, right? It's very rare that someone has good theology and bad worship or good ethics and bad worship, right? Our theology informs our worship, informs our ethics, and they are all affecting one another, deeply interrelated. So how does this break down for Israel in our passage today? Let's look first at their error in theology. The people are looking forward to, at the beginning of our passage, they're looking forward to the day of the Lord, but Amos asks this question, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, why would you have the day of the Lord? Now the day of the Lord is something that develops a rich theological tradition throughout Scripture, but you're actually looking at the first place it occurs in the Bible. The day of the Lord will come to refer to a hoped-for day in the future for the people of God in which God will visit Israel's enemies and hold them accountable and defeat them and will reestablish Israel as his favored son. So the people, Israel figured out, we're never going to be in right relationship with God until he acts decisively on our behalf. This must be coming in the future. And the prophets began to speak of a day of the Lord on which this would happen. It was a day of hope. It was supposed to be a day of light. It was a day in which all things would be put right. Now here's Amos right, saying, why are you looking forward to that day, Israel? Well, that's an odd question. They're supposed to be looking forward to that day. That's the hope of Israel. But we realize that it's not going to be a day of hope for this Israel. If you peek over at verse 20, Amos says, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? The day of the Lord is not going to be a day of light and hope for Israel. It's going to be a day of darkness and gloom. How could this be? This is supposed to be the day of Israel's vindication. But it's not going to be. And this could only be the case if Israel had actually become an enemy of God. That they find themselves no longer in a favored relationship with Him. But by abdicating the responsibilities, they find themselves ostracized from them. What we see Israel doing is presuming upon God's promise. Right? We know that several things are going on in Israel. The two basic charges of Amos up to this point has been, number one, you've corrupted your worship, and number two, 
You've uh, celebrated your affluence and neglected and taken advantage of the poor. And by virtue of these two charges that Amos brings on God's behalf against the people, God is saying we are alienated. But the people apparently are still saying everything's okay. We're looking forward to the day of the Lord. You know, we don't feel that close to Him right now, but there's a day coming. And after all, we are God's chosen people. We're the children of grace. We're waiting for Him to act on our behalf. And while they're confessing that, those words come out of their mouth, they've given up love of God and obedience to Him. And they place themselves in an awkward place. They actually place themselves in a place of judgment coming down upon uh, Israel. Well, thank goodness we live in New Testament times, right? Which we experience the grace of God. Now, one of my points to you this morning is that uh, we need a much healthier fear of the day of the Lord. We run the same mistake of saying, oh, well, God is for us in Christ. He forgives everything, and we're just waiting for Him to return, and all things will be put to rights. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We see that Jesus says the same thing to us, that there can be a presumption upon the promise of God so that we excuse our obedience and what we're confessing, what we're actually saying when we do that is, I want the promise of God, but I don't really care about His presence. I want what God offers, but I'm not really interested in a relationship with Him. Well, how do we know if we're in this kind of place? How do we take more seriously the warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 7? Well, worship is a good place to look. Worship not only here as we gather on Sunday, but your worship during the week as well. If you have bad theology, if you prefer God's promise to His presence, that will result in a worship that is not pleasing nor acceptable in His sight. In fact, it will be a stench to Him. If you skim just briefly with me God's attitude toward the worship of Israel in verses 21 through 23, some of the strongest language in the Old Testament. I hate, I despise, I take no delight. I will not accept them being the offerings. I will not look upon them. Take away from me, I will not listen. Israel's worship had become nothing short of a stench to God. Why? We have already noted, but you have to keep in mind, what is Israel neglecting? Why are they being prosecuted? Why are they on trial? It is for worship that has no sense of reality. It's an outward act at the temples of Yahweh without obedience. And it's a worship of affluence in which they neglect and take advantage of the poor. And so, rather than bringing a true, uh, true worship, what are they doing? They're bringing their sacrifices. They're going through the motions. They're still showing up at the temple of Yahweh. They're still sacrificing their animal and acting in, in an act of worship. But they aren't offering themselves at all. Right? They bring their sacrifice, but not themselves. They would offer a gift but they wouldn't offer their own hearts or their own obedience. Well, sometimes it is hard to worship, isn't it? 
I think if we can be perhaps sympathetic in some ways with Israel, right? There are lots of places in Israel's history where it just felt like God wasn't present, where God wasn't showing up in a decisive way on their behalf. And sometimes I feel like God doesn't really show up in a decisive way. And then I'm supposed to worship, supposed to offer myself in love and obedience. Well, it's hard to love when you don't feel loved. Again, we have to be careful how we process certain things. There were some tears in our house this week. Uh, My daughter, Molly, was trying out for the basketball team, and she had been part of a practice team that had been uh, practicing to try to level up. In the middle school, there are three different teams, A, B, and C teams. And uh, she had played on the B team and was aspiring to play at a higher level. And so went with, through uh, this practice uh, with a coach and with a number of other girls. And then uh, the tryouts were last week. And when they were broken up to scrimmage, Molly was grouped with the poorest performing players. And all of her other friends were grouped with the higher performing players. So there's disappointment, sadness, right? Frustration. Now imagine just for a moment, for the sake of an analogy, that I have the power to affect that decision. That I wield some clout at Kane Middle School and I could go over there and, and make a call or pay a visit to someone. Say, you remember what you confessed the other week? Do you want that to be public? Something of that nature. <laughs> and suddenly, Molly is on the A-team. Right? Now would that be good for Molly? Is that something that's going to actually move her forward in life and maturity and in developing a whole heart? Or, and this is a secret between you and me, and this is one of those occasions where the second service won't get the same illustration as the first service because Molly will be in the second service. But um, can you imagine that um, in her frustration, right, uh, realizing that Molly never really practices? Right? If there are a group of girls going to play with a coach, she'll, she's happy to go play and spend time with her friends, but she's never on any occasion gone out by herself to our basketball hoop and shot baskets or practiced dribbling. Right? Maybe the exact lesson she needs to learn is that she can't aspire to be on a higher level team if she's not willing to practice the sport that she plays. Maybe it's a good wake-up call that she's not really there to play the sport, but simply to spend time with friends. Right? Now, in her frustration, she could turn to contempt. She could have contempt for the coach, anger towards her friends. She could be angry at us. You didn't, you didn't offer enough practice. She's not doing any of that, but right, th- this is one direction that her heart could turn. Her heart could turn away from those people who love her in anger and contempt. And when we're in a place of frustration and feel like God has not loved us well nor served us well, that's our temptation to turn away, right, in contempt, right, and to say, yeah, I'll go through the motions of making my sacrifice because I don't want to be in too much trouble, but God, you're sure not going to get my heart. You're sure not going to get my obedience because as soon as I leave Sunday morning and I've made my sacrifice, I'm going to turn back to the things that feel like they're really for me and giving me life. And so what is the nature of your worship? If you take stock of your heart, Right? Do you have, a, do you have a, a, a presence during the week of reverence toward God and a priority of honoring Him? Do you have the base, most basic rule of faith in which daily at some point you would, you would seek to hear from God in His Word and to pray to Him and to offer Him reverence as due? 
And if not, then what really is the nature of your relationship with God? Is there a theology that is inadequate that's informing your worship? The inadequacy of that theology being the reality that you really like God's promises, but you're not very interested in His presence. You love a God who will act on your behalf and do what you want Him to do when you want Him to do it. But the idea of really being stripped of the loves we have of this world to be rendered His. That's a painful process. And we would love, most days, to take an alternative route. Our worship reveals our theological notions of God, and bad worship reveals bad theology. And if you have bad worship or bad theology, it also results in bad ethics. In doing the wrong thing, which of course we've already noted, but look how this develops in verse 25. God says, Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? It's asking them to remember the 40 years in the wilderness. And he asked, Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? And the answer is largely no. Uh, The sacrificial system wasn't particularly established during that time. And if you remember, the people didn't have meat. They didn't have animals to sacrifice. And what God seems to be saying is, Remember how our relationship started. It started as I led you out and called you to be my people in the wilderness and I asked you only to trust me. And what you did instead was disobey and complain the whole way. Our relationship is not based simply on a sacrifice. You don't get to say everything's okay simply because you've made a sacrifice. What I've always wanted is you. What I've always wanted is your trust and your affection and your obedience. You were created to love me, and if you're not loving me, you're going to love something else, and it will be a bad thing that will devour you. So God says, this isn't about sacrifices. It's about your heart and whether you love me or not. And indeed, the people do not love him. And if we turn our love away from God, right, if we do not desire his presence, but instead simply try to take for granted his promises... Our love will be bestowed on another thing. It can't not be bestowed on something. You can't decide not to love. If you could decide not to love, you would die. That's what you're created to do. And so what do we see the people doing? In verse 26, You shall take up Sikketh your king, and Keon your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. There are two Assyrian gods of stars. One is associated with the planet Saturn. And so the Israelites, even in the midst of pretending to go through their sacrifices to God in the temple of Yahweh, have decided to worship a God of one star rather than the creator of all stars. They've decided to place their love on something that they believe serves them and gives them what they want, rather than actually surrendering themselves to Yahweh. And this is why the day of the Lord is so incredibly dangerous for Israel. And why, quite frankly, it's, it's dangerous for us. God will make sure that 24, verse 24 occurs. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God's justice and righteousness will flow regardless of the obedience of His people. And if His people are not obedient, then it will flow over them. It will flow over you and I if we're, if we're pretending if we're not being sincere in our worship. Now the day of the Lord, what is this day? Where the wrath of God will be poured out, where God's enemies will be consumed? 
where God's people will be put to rights, it is fulfilled first and foremost in the cross. That God subjects Himself to His judgment and to His wrath so that we might be put to rights. In love and mercy, the reality that we deserve because we're always loving something else, we escape from because of God's kindness. That does not mean that there is not another day of the Lord coming. The blood that flows from Jesus establishes the stream in the new heavens and the new earth, the stream of life on, which the, bank, on the banks of which grow the trees of life. And healing will come to all those who are Christ's. Do you look forward to that day of the Lord? Do you aspire to partake of that day? And do you pray at times, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Those may be good prayers, but they may be very dangerous prayers because it was the same prayer of Israel. And to actually pray that prayer, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come quickly, they were simply praying, let your judgment fall upon our heads. Do you look forward to the day of the Lord? Do you look forward to the day of the Lord for the right reasons? When the day of the Lord comes, will, will you meet Jesus and hear from Him, you have loved me and you cared for the least of these, welcome into my kingdom. Or does the worship and theology and ethics in your life really reveal to you that you may run the risk of hearing, depart from me, for I never knew you. As you come to the table today, right, repent. You know you have bad theology. You know that you have bad worship and you know that you have bad ethics. And it has prevented you from being close to God. So repent from those things and turn toward Him and be nourished right, by the one who has given Himself up for you, that you might be His. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You that You are kind and merciful to us, but not too merciful. If You were, we would go our own way and never return because we are so prone to love anything but You. We ask that You would forgive us this morning for our waywardness and our hearts that are so easily wooed by the wrong thing. Forgive us for the ways in which we presume to know our theology and when, particularly when that allows us to have a faulty view of you and your work. Forgive us where we've presumed upon your grace. And we long for you to come and look forward to the day of the Lord and we think about the judgment about, of all evil and all enemies. Let us not consider first and foremost that it may, might be judgment upon us. And so would you help us to repent this morning, not, not in some vain or trite way. God, help us to give it up to surrender the things that we love, to give up our rings and to turn toward You. Let us be a people who are happy and fulfilled and know joy as a result of loving the one thing that is truly worth loving. We thank You that You have loved us to such a great and profound extent at this table and pray that You would nourish us here this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.